You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, and hello once more from my sweaty Los Angeles apartment. I had a wonderful time with two of my buddies last night, and I just got back from having a pedicure with my favorite lady friends, so all is good in my tiny corner of the world in this moment, as long as I don't think about anything else that's currently happening in the world right now. And this week, we've got movie theater movie reviews once more. This past week-ish, I saw Top Gun Maverick, as well as some films for the studio I work for that are out. But I don't think I should give reviews of those because of some clauses that were in my hiring agreement. Need to check on that, actually. Still haven't done that. So we're just going to err on the side of caution and not get Caitlin fired from her dream company with nothing to fall back on. Sound good? Great. Let's just say... I really liked Black Phone, and if you like scary movies, you should see it, and we're going to just leave it at that. So, Top Gun Maverick. Even though it's my dad's, I think, favorite movie, I didn't see the first Top Gun all the way through until the morning of the day I saw the second. It was one of those movies I've seen in bits and pieces over the years, but never the whole thing in one sitting. As someone who is a lady and saw it in their 30s for the first time with a female in 2022's brain, OG Top Gun didn't do it for me really, but Top Gun Maverick, very good. I mean, this movie's been out for a month. Is there really anything I can say that would make you change your mind either way to actually go see it? Probably not. I liked it. It's good. If you're on the fence, go see it. I don't know about you guys. But I am emotionally wiped out from a month on HUAC. Really glad I did it, and man, did I learn a lot from it, but I'm kind of glad to be doing anything other than reading about McCarthyism. I actually read a book for fun in like a day because I was just so glad it was not about HUAC or McCarthyism or communism or whatever. I was just anything else made me very happy. So... With that, this month, we're doing hellish film shoots, whether that were caused by maybe the filmmakers, maybe the studios or the financiers, Mother Nature or everyone's favorite Law Murphy, whatever caused the chaos. This month, we're covering four films whose productions were nothing short of bedlam. This week, Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote will cover the origins of the production, the disastrous first attempt at making the film, and how 20 years after the fact, the film finally saw the light of day. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. If you wanted to pinpoint a well-known director that has had the worst luck when it comes to making a movie, you may think of Francis Ford Coppola. 
But in my opinion, Terry Gilliam has had the most chaotic time making his films. If something can go wrong, it has probably happened on a Terry Gilliam shoot. This is the story of the film that took him 30 years to complete. Terrence Vance Gilliam was born in Minnesota, but made a name for himself in England, specifically being one of the original Monty Python members. After co-directing Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Gilliam struck out on his own as a director, his first feature after Python being 1981's Time Bandits. Gilliam liked to make his films in trilogies in his early years, with Time Bandits, Brazil from 1985, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen from 88, making up his trilogy of imagination. And then he did an Americana trilogy, which consisted of The Fisher King from 1991, 12 Monkeys from 1995, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas from 1998. Gilliam had to battle to get each of these films made, as while his ability to do amazing things on the cheap appealed to Hollywood studios, his outlandish scripts and ideas made them a bit skittish when it came to actually doling out money. Then came his white whale. Gilliam had already had a hellish experience with the production of his Baron Munchausen film. He'd essentially been lied to by the producer as to how much money had been raised, and by the end of the sixth week of production, the film was $10 million over budget, apparently. There are some discrepancies. Gilliam gained a reputation from this as a chaotic director, which has affected his ability to fund a film, even after making several successful ones ever since. Gilliam had first read Don Quixote, a Spanish epic told in two parts, which is considered to be the first modern novel, in 1989. Don Quixote is the name of the titular character, a man who has either gone mad or pretends to, in order to become a knight errant, traveling the countryside with his ward Sancho, a simple farmer. In the first part of the book, Don Quixote does not see the world for what it is and prefers to imagine that he is living out an epic knightly journey. Gilliam was drawn to the material instantly as it embodies similar themes that had run through much of his work up to that point. Most of it was mainly individual versus society while diving deeply into fantasy worlds of his main character. Don Quixote was seemingly the perfect fit. Gilliam was not the first director to attempt an adaptation of this film, far from it. One of the most notables is probably Orson Welles of Citizen Kane fame, who spent the better part of two decades attempting to get a Don Quixote film made, even shooting bits and pieces over the years, but that film was never completed. Instead of writing a literal adaptation of the source material, Gilliam's film would be about, quote, an old, retired, and slightly kooky nobleman named Alonso Quixano, who reads too many chivalric romances romances. Taking leave of his senses, he sets out to fix the world and revive chivalry. With this version in hand in 1990, Gilliam signed a deal with Phoenix Pictures, an American production company, but dropped the project when he decided that the budget was too low for what he wanted to do, and he didn't like the actor the studio was pushing hard for the titular Dawn. Gilliam also wanted to focus on another film, The Defective Detective, which was also never made. Phoenix tried to replace Gilliam and even cast some of the roles for the film before canceling the project altogether in 1997. After Phoenix's version fell through, Gilliam resumed working on the film with co-writer Tony Grissoni, renaming the project The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Instead of featuring the original characters, this new version would instead revolve around Toby, a 21st century marketing executive thrown back through time and who meets Don Quixote. 
This version of the film also borrowed elements from Mark Twain's 1889 novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, because after having failed Don Quixote's original attempt, Gilliam had unsuccessfully tried to adapt that book into a film. So this was kind of like a two birds, one stone situation. With seemingly everything going his way at last to get some funding, Gilliam announced at the premiere of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that the man who killed Don Quixote would be his next project and that he would make the film in Europe relying solely on European investors. The film was expected to be the largest European production to date, made without any backing by an American studio. The film's cast included... Jean Rochefort, a French actor whom spent seven months learning English for the role of Don Quixote, and Johnny Depp as the time-traveling Toby. Before shooting could even start, a major financier of the project pulled out, forcing production to reduce the film's budget by 20%. This film's production went to shit real fast. Let's get into it. Right off the bat, actor schedules began conflicting as they'd basically squeeze this in between two different bigger projects. It quickly became unclear how in the hell some of these actors would even have scenes together as their schedules were essentially ships in the night. Because the actors were not really available outside of the weeks that they were supposed to be shooting meant that costumes could not be finished ahead of time, so even if they did show up to set, they'd have nothing to wear or at least nothing to wear that looked good. Also, because it was squeezed in so tight, there was zero margin for error if anything went bad on this shoot. While the film's producers were able to procure a soundstage in Madrid, upon visiting it, it was immediately clear that the conditions were not conducive for recording sound. Typically, a soundstage should be damn near soundproof to ensure that clean audio is captured, but this was technically a warehouse they'd rented, not a soundstage. This particular not stage echoed like the inside of a cave, making any sound recorded within it unusable. People who had worked on Munchausen and somehow came back to a Terry Gilliam shoot began seeing parallels between the two productions. Gilliam, however, remained optimistic. After weeks of begging, a week before production was about to begin, the actors finally began to arrive in Spain. Filming started in September of 2000 in Navarre. On the very first day of shooting, F-16s flew overhead repeatedly as they were filming near a NATO military base, something that should have been considered perhaps before choosing that location. The roaring of the fighter planes effectively ruined any sound recorded, ensuring extensive ADR once the production was in post. Also, the extras had not been available during a prior rehearsal day and therefore couldn't complete a major scene planned to be shot that day. This was not known to Gilliam or anyone else on the production until they were on set trying to shoot the scene. If that wasn't bad enough, on the second day, a flash flood washed away and destroyed tons of equipment. The documentary Lost in La Mancha, which documents this attempt at making the film, shows just thousands upon thousands of dollars of equipment just getting washed down the cavern as frantic members of the production attempt to save it. This torrential downpour also changed the color of the barren cliffs of the set, making everything they'd shot on the first day even more worthless than it already was, as it would no longer match anything they were going to shoot moving forward. The crew then spent the next several days trying to recover the equipment or obtain new stuff, but it eventually turned out that the film's insurance would probably cover the film's equipment that had been destroyed, though not the delays lost to quote-unquote an act of God. On what was supposed to be the fourth day of shooting, Gilliam and company struggled to figure out what to shoot. They got nowhere. Then on the fifth day, 
of production. Filming resumed in the same location, so planes still zooming and booming by. When Rochefort attempted to ride and act, he was seen clearly wincing in pain and required assistance dismounting the horse and walking for about an hour afterwards. The actor had extensive prostate issues that were intensifying and were irritated when sitting in the saddle. In fact, he canceled his initial flight to Spain to begin shooting after feeling a pain in his side. Rochefort's pain was obvious on camera, making that footage also unusable. Over that weekend, the production scrambled to salvage what was basically an entire lost week of shooting. Cameras rolled the following Monday without Rochefort, who went to see his doctor in Paris. Like, shooting pretty much occurred that day, just to appease a big group of the film's investors that were scheduled to show up on set. On that day, the trained horse refused to do what it had been trained to do for months, forcing Gilliam to once again find a workaround. Rochefort was only supposed to be gone for a couple of days, but news soon reached production that the 70-year-old actor would need at least a week to recover. Also, it was very likely that the actor could not be put on a horse when he returned. If you know the source material at all, that's a pretty big part of that character's stuff, is doing stuff on a horse. So not not ideal. Rochefort was additionally diagnosed with a double herniated disc, just for good measure. The crew attempted to shoot scenes that did not involve Rochefort, but as time passed, it became unclear whether Rochefort would even be able to return to set or not. The insurance company pressed Gilliam to recast, as it was becoming clear that the actor's absence was killing the production. Gilliam was very disappointed by this as he had spent two years trying to find the perfect actor to play Quixote. Another issue was that Gilliam, Depp, and Rochefort were contractually considered essential elements of the film, which meant that if any one of the three left the project, the film would have to be refinanced. By the end of October, it became clear that Rochefort would not return. Despite the efforts of those involved and even the presence of a completion guarantor, someone who comes to a production in peril to ensure the film is completed in order to protect the investor's assets, production was suspended. Slowly, the crew and cast began leaving for other gigs. Not even two months after cameras began to roll, and just after four days of actual shooting, the film was canceled. Nicola Pecorini, the film's cinematographer, stated at the time, quote, Never in 22 years of being in this business have I seen such a sum of bad luck. Two years later, the documentary Lost in La Mancha was released, documenting the film's short, catastrophic production. Other than Heart of Darkness, Lost in La Mancha may be the best documentary about filmmaking out there. In fact, I actually studied it in my film history class my freshman year of college, and it was my first major shock when it came to the reality of filmmaking. And that was the fact that even if you have money and a talented crew and resources, your movie might not get finished. That didn't seem like that was even a possibility before that. Happens more than you think honestly. So after the production's cancellation, an insurance claim was filed on behalf of the film's investors. $15 million was reportedly paid, and the rights to the screenplay ended up going to the insurance company. Gilliam would regain these rights to the script in 2006. From 2003 on, Gilliam kept on trying to make his film, but to no avail. His first attempt, six months after the release of Lost in the Mancha, was quickly shut down. In 2005, Gilliam voiced his interest in recasting the role of Don Quixote with Gerard Depardieu. 
but the film had gained the reputation of being cursed, making it even harder for Gilliam to find financial support. Gilliam turned his focus to other, also failed projects. He tried the defective detective again with Nicolas Cage attached. That fell through. Then he was going to direct an adaptation of the Neil Gaiman Terry Pratchett novel Good Omens, which was canceled after 9-11 because the subject matter was deemed too dark. The film he finally did succeed in making was that just awful 2005 film, The Brothers Grimm, starring Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, during the production of which he fought endlessly with the film's producers, whom were Bob and Harvey Weinstein. His next film, 2009's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, fell into chaos, as during a break in the filming, the film's lead, Heath Ledger, died tragically at the age of 28. Filming was completed having other actors portray the character any time he entered the Imaginarium. In 2008, Gilliam once again embarked on a quest to see his Don Quixote film made. Robert Duvall was cast to replace Rochefort in the titular role, and Johnny Depp was still slated to portray Toby. But Depp had signed on for two Disney films, likely Alice in Wonderland and the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film, so this led to further production delays. Shooting was scheduled nonetheless for early 2010. Whether the production timetable would have been maintained, we'll never know, because Depp ultimately decided not to do the film, going so far as to state that he was not sure if he wanted to revisit the revived project at all. On May 17th, 2010, it was announced that Ewan McGregor, aka Obi-Wan Kenobi, would take over the part. Funding fell through once again for the film in September 2010, once again putting the film in jeopardy of ever getting made. Duvall and McGregor would remain attached for several years. In January 2014, Gilliam announced on social media that he had once again started pre-production on this film with a shooting date set for September of that year. The plot of the film had changed as well. Gilliam stated about the new plot, quote, Our main character actually made a Don Quixote movie a lot earlier in his history, and the effect it had on many people wasn't very nice. Some people go mad, some turn to drink, some people become whores. I'm guessing there was a little bit of some semi-autobiographical stuff going on there. There was also some new cast. John Hurt replaced Robert Duvall as the titular character. In November 2014, Jack O'Connell replaced Ewan McGregor as Toby. But once again, filming was delayed. Gilliam did not state the reason for this delay in an interview he gave for Rolling Stone, stating just that, quote, there's been a little hiccup once again. The Sisyphean rock that keeps rolling back. Just as we almost get to the top of the mountain, we'll see what happens. I'm not a happy camper at the moment. On June 15th, 2015, Gilliam procured a theatrical release for a film he had made from Amazon Studios. It seemed like it was go time at last. Then, in September 2015, just before principal photography was about to begin, John Hurt was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and as a result, production had to be put on hold again. Hurt would die from pancreatic cancer on January 25th, 2017. In September 2016, Paolo Branco, a Portuguese producer, promised Gilliam at the 66th Berlin Film Festival that he would find Gilliam the 16 million euro he needed to make this film at long last. Branco, as a producer, had had more films accepted into the Cannes Film Festival than any other producer, so this seemed like a good idea. Casting changed again, with former Monty Python cohort Michael Palin taking on the titular Don and Adam Driver, a.k.a. Kylo Ren being cast as Toby. This version of the film 
film would be set in modern day. And this is the one with like Toby being the director. And he finds his old student film, which was a retelling of Don Quixote. He goes back to the Spanish village where he shot it, only to get embroiled in a series of shenanigans. Well, Bronco, who made good on getting the money or he said he did at least, began fighting with Gilliam for creative control of the film. Gilliam was so desperate to have it made that he'd ignored the stories of Bronco's reputation and was beginning to rue this decision. You see, Bronco was a bit of an a-hole, which his Wikipedia page, which was no doubt written by someone on his team, describes as being quote-unquote a sharp businessman. Life tip to you, young ones, if you ever see verbiage like this on a job posting, run, run away fast if you love your mental health, they're probably freaking crazy. Trust me and thank me later. In fact, Bronco's reputation was so bad that Amazon withdrew from the project. A representative from the company, Matthew Heinz, sent a letter stating that, quote, In regard of the interactions we had with Bronco, we do not wish to pursue further negotiations with him. Despite yet another setback, Gilliam stated during the Cannes Film Festival that the film would start shooting in October 2016. Then, Bronco tried to reduce the budget. He cut Palin's pay by nearly two-thirds, which pissed the actor off. On April 29, 2016, Gilliam signed a deal where, in exchange for producing the film, Bronco would earn, in addition to his own salary, the salary of Gilliam's as well. That's how bad he wanted to make this damn movie. He gave the asshole his paycheck. But Bronco wasn't done. He soon tried to reduce the salaries of other crew members. He also tried to push Palin away from the project, considering him too old. He wanted to have his sister hired as the costume designer. He wanted to have filming move it up, and he wanted to have the film shot using digital cameras instead of 35mm film like Gilliam wanted. Some of the film's other producers and its distributors stated that Bronco told Gilliam, quote, either you make this film my way, or you irremediably compromise the feasibility of the project and your film is condemned. It will never see the light of day. At the end of it all, though, Bronco did not provide the promised money. When Gilliam complained, Bronco answered that he, quote, would not accept this kind of spoiled kid behavior. On August 6th, Bronco sent a message to Gilliam urging him to accept his conditions, including the reduced budget, and to give Bronco full creative control over the project, threatening to cancel the whole thing altogether and fire the entire crew and cast. Gilliam answered that those demands were unacceptable and, quote, incompatible with the contract I have signed. In response, Bronco officially suspended production. Gilliam kept on working, however, with new producers, stating, quote, we should be here at the Cannes Film Festival next year with the finished film, and then you can ask me why I made such a mess of it or why I made such a wonderful film. Gilliam found a set of new producers and cast Jonathan Price as Don Quixote, with Adam Driver remaining in the role of Toby. Price had been a member of the original production's cast, though in a different role. Filming finally began in March of 2017. On June 4th, 2017, Gilliam announced that filming had finally been completed, 17 years after it had begun. But the issues weren't over. Bronco began legal proceedings against Gilliam, claiming that he owned the intellectual rights to the film. But this was contingent on Bronco securing the funding for the film, which he had not done. Gilliam had tried and failed to have the contract nullified in Paris and London, and failed both times. Bronco also accused Gilliam of having obtained the new funds for the film illegally, which Gilliam denied. In April 2018, Bronco continued to claim that the film could not be released without his permission, leading to the issue being 
being debated in court. As a result, the premiere of the film at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival, where it was supposed to be the festival's closing film, was canceled. Both Gilliam's lawyer and Ocean Films, the French distributor of the film, stated that Bronco was actively trying to prevent the film from being included in festivals to pressure the producers into paying him so the issue could be settled in time for said festivals. Ocean Films stated that Bronco, quote, was never, is not, and never will be the producer of Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote. Anne added that the producers and distributors, quote, would not yield to this attempt at intimidation. They also stated that Bronco had previously attempted to have filming canceled, but this claim had been rejected by a court on May 19th, 2017. On May 9th, 2018, it was announced that the film would be allowed to screen in French cinemas and was reinstated as Cannes' closing film, but it would not be eligible for the festival's competition. Cannes' organizers responded to Bronco's claims by stating, quote, The festival to Cannes' mission is to choose works purely on artistic grounds, and the selection must, above all, be with the agreement of the film's director. This is the case here. Past experience had made us aware of possible legal action and of the risks we are running, but as it happens, when we took our decision, there was no opposition to the screening of the film at the festival. Our entire profession knows that quote-unquote forcing matters has always been Mr. Bronco's favorite method, and we should recall that he organized a press conference a few years ago where he denounced the Festival de Cannes because it had not kept a quote-unquote promise to select one of his films. This was an accusation which didn't go anywhere because the festival does not make promises to select films. In June 2018, the Paris Court of Appeal ruled in favor of Bronco owning all rights to the film. Bronco then stated that he would seek damages not only from Gilliam, who the court demanded pay 10,000 euros to Bronco's production company, but to all parties involved in the film at pretty much every level. This guy is a master in pettiness. Later that month, it was reported that although the court ruled in favor of Bronco, producer Mariela Busuievsky clarified that Gilliam, in fact, still retains the rights to the film, saying that Bronco overstated his victory in the ruling. Gilliam never shot a frame of the film under the deal with Bronco, and as such, the former producer does not own any rights. However, since Gilliam did a poor job of terminating his contract with Bronco, a settlement still had to be paid. Also, according to the producer, they chose to remain quiet about the actual, like, minutia of the, the ruling because it didn't feel necessary. But when Bronco went public with his victory and claimed rights to the film, they felt that they had to step forward and air all the quote-unquote dirty laundry. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote premiered as the closing film for the 71st Cannes Film Festival on May 19th, 2018, where it was met with a standing ovation. Despite ultimately contributing quite a bit of money to the production, it was announced that Amazon Studios would not be distributing the film in the U.S. That would go to Screen Media in 2018. The film was released in North American theaters as a Fathom event and was only shown on April 10th, 2019. As of this recording, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is currently available on Hulu in the United States. It took nearly 30 years of grit, determination, and hundreds of setbacks for Terry Gilliam's adaptation of Don Quixote to make it to the big screen, but it's here, it exists despite everything, serving as a shining example of the willpower of this visionary director. I mean, I'm not Sancho, I'm a... Malambrino, the enchanter, the fiend in disguise. 
Wait, 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 wait. You know what? I'm fucking Sancho. You don't recognize my face? I'm Sancho. Sancho? Uh, she didn't say enchanter. She said, she said, uh, she said chanter. I said enchanter. Um, I'm a chanter. Canter! Eddie Canter! Eddie Canter, only not totally Jewish looking. Oh, fuck it. If you knew Susie like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a gal. There's none so classy as this fair lassie, oh. Oh, oh my goodness, what a chancy. Uh -huh. We went riding, she didn't balk. From the country, I'm the one that had to walk. If you knew Susie, like I know Susie. Oh, I want to go. You have me worried for a moment there, Sancho. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. There's also a Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee instead of like, so it kind of goes something towards something tangible. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, the film that bankrupted its studio and that many say ruined Hollywood. We're covering the disaster that was the film Heaven's Gate. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. If you knew Susie like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a gal. There's none so classy as this fair lassie, oh, oh, oh my goodness, what a chassis.